The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we're going to discuss Satan, also known as the Devil, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Mephistopheles, Prince of Darkness, the Great Adversary, and Lord of Hell. We're going to go through the Old and New Testament, examining Satan's role, character, and story throughout. His precipitous plummet from exalted hierarch of heaven, one of the foremost angels of the celestial realm, to the wicked and wily arch-nemesis of God, heaven, and goodness, to his eventual eternal banishment in the lake of fire. Let's get into it. In the Abrahamic religions, meaning Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Satan is either an agent of God, a malevolent entity, or an abstract force that tempts people towards evil and sin. Though this video will focus on the conceptualization that portrays Satan as a malevolent entity, the chief evil of creation. In the Old Testament, Satan functions as an angel whose sin-eliciting activities are sanctioned by God, testing humanity's resolve to stay on the righteous path, making him, thus, subservient to God in this capacity. Breaking away from this notion, Satan, in the New Testament, is viewed as a rogue entity, a fallen angel who operates in defiance of God, ceaselessly endeavoring to unravel the Lord's design by contriving the ruination of his great works, namely humanity, ever tempting people to stray from what is right and good, using evil and sin as his instruments of corruption. What's interesting here, though, is some of the discourse surrounding Satan's existence in defiance of God. When conceptualized as an entity of evil that works in opposition to God, on some level, it can be argued, Satan's existence as the arch-nemesis of heaven continues because of the sufferance of God. As God is all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, meaning, if he so desired, he could obliterate Satan with but a thought, expunging him from the fabric of reality, as is more or less what happens at the very end of the Bible when God summons forth a storm of fire that rains down from the sky. Though Satan's appearance is never delineated in the Bible, his appearance, as portrayed in the vast constellation of iconography created over many centuries, is commonly characterized by horns, cloven hoofs, hairy legs reminiscent of those of a goat, nakedness, a red motif that evokes hellfire, and a pitchfork. It is argued that these features are an amalgamation of various features found on various pagan gods, all of which were utterly repudiated by Christianity. Such gods include the Greek god Pan, who was a half-goat, half-human appearance, Poseidon, who wielded a trident, and Hades, who wielded a bident, both of those weapons being very similar to the pitchfork, which has become a symbol synonymous with Satan. The Old Testament begins with the Book of Genesis, which, in turn, begins with the creation of the universe, an unfathomable and astronomical undertaking God accomplished in only six days, taking the seventh to rest. He created the Garden of Eden, a place of paradise, and in it he put Adam, the first man, then making Eve so that Adam would have a partner. They had the run of the place, a patch of perfection over which they were like king and queen, almost like two children with parent-endowed sovereignty over a backyard, and the only rule they had to abide by was imparted to them by God, 
that they not eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here is where Satan's first appearance in the Old Testament comes in, depending on the interpretation. A serpent, the most subtle and cunning of all of God's creatures, slithers over to Eve and tempts her with his forked tongue. Here's the passage from the King James Version of the Bible. Now the serpent was more subtle than any piece of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said unto the woman, Yeah, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman said that the tree was good, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. In Christianity, the serpent in the garden is commonly identified with Satan, a connection that is, in large part, reinforced and reaffirmed in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, Satan is portrayed as a great red dragon, and this dragon, in turn, is identified with a serpent, that old serpent to be specific. With that connection established, it isn't much of a stretch to then equate Satan with other serpents in the Christian Bible, such as the serpent in the garden in the book of Genesis. Furthermore, from a narrative standpoint, it's quite fitting that the serpent in the garden be identified with Satan, for Satan tempts people towards sin, which undoubtedly is what the serpent accomplishes in the book of Genesis when he approaches Eve. Regarding Satan's fall from grace, meaning his rebellion against God and subsequent excommunication from the heavenly choirs and exile from heaven, becoming the supreme agent of evil in all of creation, the events leading up to it aren't delineated in the Bible. The war between heaven's forces and Satan's forces, as well as Satan's fall, are discussed, as can be seen in this passage from the book of Revelation. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Despite what this passage says, the events leading up to the conflict, Satan's motivations included, aren't spelled out. Yet, while there isn't a canonical explanation, this hasn't stopped theologians from thinking deeply about this. But reconciling this is complicated, proving more than a bit of a quandary, for angels are beings of profound power, intelligence, and goodness presumably placing sin beneath them, as well as the folly of challenging God, an entity who cannot be bested. Many of the best authorities posit that Satan's sin 
was his desire of independence and equality with God, a position attested to by Isaiah 14, 12-14. What, fallen from heaven, thou Lucifer, that once didst herald the dawn, prostrate on the earth, that didst once bring nations to their knees, I will scale the heavens, such was thy thought, I will set my throne higher than God's stars, take my seat at his own trysting place, at the meeting of the northern hills, I will soar above the level of the clouds, the rival of the Most High. Originally, this passage was interpreted as a Babylonian king being excoriated for pride. Later though, after the biblical period, the meaning of this passage was reimagined by medieval theologians, who equated Lucifer with Satan, thus creating through reinterpretation a scripture-endorsed narrative that spoke, though with no great detail, of Satan's motivation for breaking faith with God. There is some interesting discussion regarding the implausibility of Satan's rebellion, rooted in Satan's great power, deep knowledge and closeness to God. It has been said that Satan, even when reckoned against other angels, would have had one of the clearest understandings of the singular limitlessness of God's power, which would, in turn, at least it should, make the folly of inciting a rebellion against God an entity so powerful that he created the universe, literally everything, angels included, in only six days, plain to see. What hope could Satan possibly have against such a being, and given Satan's great power, deep knowledge and closeness to God, how could he not know that any move against God is nothing but to invite certain failure? In Hebrew, Satan means adversary, and Satan, as an epithet for the devil, is actually a truncated version of Ha-Satan, meaning the adversary, which, as originally conceived, referred to a post held or duty performed by an angel that served God, one not fallen or apostate. This angel, as directed by God, would oppose mankind, bringing strife and suffering to test resolve, to see if, even in the face of unbearable circumstances, people would keep their faith and remain true to God. This is demonstrated in the book of Job, one of the books of the Old Testament. The story begins in heaven, where God extols the righteousness of his servant Job to the assemblage of angels gathered before him. One of these angels, called Ha-Satan in Hebrew, approaches God and presents him with this question. How do you know Job is actually good? Are you sure it's not just a superficial display put on because you reward him? Ha-Satan then follows up this question with a proposal, which is something to this effect. Let me go forth, I'll unleash every sort of pain imaginable. Then, when he is laid low, when truly everything has been taken from him, let us see if his faith holds true. Stripped of everything, made pitiable, let us see if his dedication to you remains. Said another way, it's a proposal to test whether Job is just maintaining a facade to reap God's rewards. Harsatan descends to the mortal plane and afflicts Job with every sort of torment. He loses his kids, his servants, his fat herds, and he becomes riddled with boils. Despite all of this, though, Job still keeps God in his heart. But eventually, he reaches a sort of breaking point and demands that God, who materializes in the form of a storm cloud, explain why his design beset him with hardship. In response, God takes Job on a sort of tour of the universe, pulling back the proverbial curtain, thereby showing how vast and complex creation really is. 
Through this experience, Job comes to understand that creation is boundless and ever-changing, that, consequently, not everything that transpires can be a blessing. Ultimately, this leaves Job with a profound sense of humility. He continues life as a God-fearing man, later regaining double what he lost. It is thought that the impetus for Satan becoming conceptualized as the arch-nemesis of heaven began in the 6th century BC. Jerusalem was assailed and laid to waste in 587 BC by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In the wake of this, many Jews were taken prisoner and brought to Babylon. A few decades later, Cyrus the Great vanquished the Babylonians in 550 BC, one of the founding events that created the Persian Empire. At this time, the official Persian religion was Zoroastrianism, originated by the prophet Zoroaster. In this religion, good and evil were held as polar opposite pillars that structured creation, and these abstractions, good and evil, were personified by two opposing entities. Ahura Mazda, the sole god of the religion, the ultimate embodiment of goodness in creation, and his antithesis, Angra Menu, the embodiment of Druge, chaos. In 539 BC, the Jews were granted permission by Cyrus to return to Jerusalem, though some decided not to make the journey back to their ancestral land, opting instead to remain. The Jews who did return to Jerusalem brought elements of Zoroastrianism with them, elements that would influence Judaism, such as Angra Menu as the incarnation of chaos, a concept that would influence how Satan was characterized and perceived, a first step in his transformation from angelic servant of God who tested the faith of humanity to the deepest expression of evil and sin. Unlike the Old Testament, the New Testament unequivocally portrays Satan as an evil entity. We're going to spend the rest of the video examining several books from the New Testament where this dynamic is showcased. The Temptation of Christ by Satan, which is variously described in the Synoptic Gospels, meaning those of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Book of Revelation, which describes a final battle between God and Satan. In the Synoptic Gospels, Satan is described as tempting Jesus multiple times. He shows Jesus a stone and tells him to transfigure it to bread. He brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the Temple of Jerusalem and tells him to jump off so that angels will appear and catch him as he falls. And he brings Jesus to the summit of a towering mountain, a lofty vantage point from which he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, promising them if Jesus only bows and worships him. Jesus admonishes Satan after each failed attempt to lure him from the light, punctuating their series of interactions by ordering Satan from his sight, proclaiming that only the Lord God is to be worshipped. Additionally, Satan also features in the parables of Jesus, which are found in the Synoptic Gospels as well. In the parable of the sower, Satan is said to strongly sway those who don't embrace the gospel, and the parable of the sheep and goats says that those who are seduced by Satan will be profoundly punished when judgement day comes, that Satan, as well as the angels and the masses of people enthralled by him, will be subjected to eternal fire. Finally, we have the book of Revelation, which details the final struggle between light and dark, heaven and hell, God and Satan. Here's the passage from Revelation 12 in which this struggle is recounted. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. 
neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. They heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Following his initial defeat, which resulted in Satan's expulsion from heaven, casting him down to earth, Satan turns his attention from the angelic choirs he just waged war against to humanity, specifically those who were God-fearing people, keeping the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ close in their hearts. Two beasts emerge which, viewed through one lens, can be interpreted as representing the Antichrist and the false prophet, and together with the dragon, creating an unholy trinity existing in blasphemous mockery of the holy trinity that comprises God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Finally, after an interminable period in which the dragon and the two beasts endeavour, harnessing all of their fell arts to corrupt humanity, the unholy trinity is defeated on the mortal plane. Both beasts cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Following the defeat of Satan, the Antichrist and the False Prophet, with the Antichrist and the False Prophet banished to live in perpetual torment in the lake of fire, an angel descends from heaven with a great chain and the key to the bottomless pit. Satan is bound and imprisoned for 1000 years. Those who broke faith with God, tempted by Satan, were left dead. But those unwavering and resolute, those who never let their hearts be warped or tainted by sin, were resurrected and with Jesus they ruled for 1000 years. After 1000 years, Satan is released, his dark power once again preying on humanity, contaminating and corrupting the minds of those susceptible to sin. Nations once again are influenced by his dark power, and a great army will be raised. But this time, God summons a storm of fire from above and consumes these forces. Satan is cast into the same lake of fire the two beasts were cast into, and there he will remain burning for eternity. The New Testament ends with the final judgement. All of the dead are resurrected. The righteous, those whose names are written in the book of life, go on to live in eternal bliss, and the sinful, along with death and hell, are cast into the lake of fire. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like the video and subscribe to the channel. As always, leave your video suggestions.